On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Harris edges! Shammy gets the wicket! Australia loses their second. Well, heartbreak for Australia going down to India by 32 runs in the first test of the summer. Welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp cricket podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel. And uh, just a reminder that during summer, it'll be double doses of the podcast. So this is the Monday show. And on today's episode, we're going to wrap up the first test match. I'm going to do that with Richard Earl from the Adelaide Advertiser. And then I have an extra special guest, Test legend Ian Healy joins me for a feature interview where we discuss some of the highlights of his career. Then we wrap up today's show with me having a roving microphone at North Sydney Oval. I got to talk to a couple of women's Big Bash League players, Elise Villane and Dane Van Nakirk. So that's to end the show. But let's start straight away with the first test, a dramatic win for India by 32 runs tail end resistance by Australia and joining me from the Adelaide Advertiser is Richard Earl. Well Richard what a great start to the test summer. Yeah Andrew you couldn't really um, ask for much more than such a you know closely fought uh, affair so many twists and turns over you know a 31 uh, run deficit India's first ever win in a series opener on Australian soil and um, yeah it had it all you had uh, innings from uh, Travis Head at the hometown hero you had Pajara's you know superb knocks you had Sean Marsh under his critics and you know to a certain extent in the in the, in the second innings Nathan Lyon you know all the above Ravi Ravi Ashwin everything all the different twi- twists and turns and scripts you had the whole lot yeah, it was a dramatic finish. Uh, Australia really teased us on this last day. They sort of yeah. gave us glimmers of hope, even though we lost. Uh, Australia lost Travis Head in in the first session. You just kept clinging to the faint hope that the tail would get us close, and they did, and just fell desperately short, 32 runs short of that victory. Tell me, what was the reaction like at the press conferences after? I guess we'll start with the Indian skipper. He must have been buoyant, Virat Kohli, at the press conference. Yeah, he said, "Look, definitely, we you know we can win this from here." And he said, "You know, we, we've got to make this count and and, and the self belief uh, that he thought was in the team, you know, came to the fore." And uh, he was really, really, you know, indebted. He said to the way Pajara batted, and when he said they went totally down the dumps in, in on the first day, but he's the one that galvanised them with that century. Um, they've all batted around him, and he's the one that pulled them out of the fire, and ultimately. Um, prove a difference, albeit maybe it was with the help of some DRS decisions, but he was the one that proved a difference. And, and he also played credit, played credit to, obviously, to his bowlers like Ravi Ashwin who bowled 52 overs in the uh, in the second innings. And Boomer, who bowled really well in uh, and Ishan, even though he bowled some no balls, um, he was pretty pivotal, uh, pr- pretty pivotal too. And do you get the feeling Virat's pretty happy with the makeup of this his team? I think he is. I think he's uh, quite happy, actually. He's got exactly what he needs. Finally, he's got an Indian attack that sort of can match um, Australia in terms of speed. He's got all those blokes pulling it around 140, and all of a sudden you had Ishan, you know, sort of roughing up with some different um, difficult angles. You had, you know, guys like Travis Head, and um, they just they had a really good plan to, and they bowled so many, you know, full deliveries outside off start, and then cramping, you know, with a real, real sort of a killer sort of short ball, which he wasn't expecting, and and that's the kind of sort of that's the kind of potency, I guess, Indian attacks have. I've really lacked in Australian conditions before, but now, but now, uh, Coley has that, and he's also got a great spinner, so he's got the, all the makings of a you know, of, of a Sobek winner series. And are you impressed by this Indian side? They came here with a lot of hype, but they've never performed well in Australia. Are you impressed by their performance? Look, I think what they've done is they've they've gone away and learned. Like Ishan, um, he averaged fifty here when he uh, arrived on these shores, and, and he hadn't really retained the, the kind of spark that we. We first saw when he first took on Ricky Ponting in that 2008 series, but 
they've gone away and learned how to bowl here. I think they've actually gone and gone and, and, and learned from past lessons. And even Ashwin's, you know, he, he's learned some learned from past mistakes here and, and trying to not to bowl as fast, trying to start up a bit more, a bit more um, over spin uh, with his finger spinners. So I think they've gone away, and I think he does think they have the actual size that can actually. Uh, win this series. Look, they're not well beaters. They're playing a weakened Australian side, but they can only play who they can play, and they definitely are, I think, a superior um, force and a bit more savvy this time around. And what did Tim Payne say after the loss? Uh, well, first of all, he said his finger's fine, but uh, that, that, that remains to be seen because he, he, he did cop a, um, a nasty whack. But he, he obviously said that... Um, yeah, there is there are lots of areas to improve. Uh, he said he liked the fighting spirit um, of the Australians, and and that's true. And that's and that's what yeah, we're back to basics now. The first element Justin Lung is trying to install is is the fight, and then hopefully the class and and the and the, the performances come later on. But when you're crediting the fight that you display, that means you you're working from a pretty low base because um, the class of when the class of previous sides um, that was just taken as a given, as I think Mark Hall actually said today. So. Yes, there were some positive signs, but also um, when you're having um, only two blokes, you know, really make fifties in the side, and you're having batting collapses, and you still got issues at number six. Um, I, I, there's still, there's still to me, there's a lot of concerns, even with the openers as well. A lot of concerns. And anything else to come out of the press conferences? Uh, that, that was the main thing. I think um, if if there was something else to come out, Tim Payne sort of. I'm not going to say he's written off the DRS, but I think if you get up the, I think Pujara and Rahani got let off about 113 runs from after they had their DRS verdicts, after they had their verdicts overturned by a DRS. So he sort of indicated a slight loss of faith, just in terms of that pain I'm talking about. He was talking about how you're not, you're never quite sure how high on the replays using the technology, the predictive path will indicate how high the actual ball was bouncing, and, and I think we've got a really fair point there. It's almost like a bit of Hollywood, you know, uh, hieroglyphics, really. I mean, who knows how high the actual ball is going to bounce, and, and relying on all this sort of technology or, or TV replays, and as, as the guys also say, they're, they're saying, well, Nathan Lyon was telling them a different thing than maybe what the, because um, he obviously feels the point, he was saying his predictive path was different to what was happening out on the screens. We, we, we saw Aaron, um, Aaron Finch, you know, uh, probably botched one of his reviews, all of a sudden, we've got a you know a funny situation where the the country that opposed the use of the DRS for so long is now sort of maybe benefiting of it, and Australia, which pushed for it, is now maybe sort of you know I'm not quite so sure about it. Well, there was that example a couple of years ago in a match where the predictive ball path had the ball going over the stumps, but the ball actually bowled the batsman. So, an example of an error. But what about uh, Mitchell Stark? There was question marks over his rhythm during the test match. What did you see watching him bowl? Does he look out of rhythm? And did Tim Payne say anything about Mitchell Stark? Yeah, he was asked, um, look, why did you take him off up two ball, two overs with the new ball yesterday? And he said he was just, um, you know, trying to uh, get the maximum output from each from each bowler and uh, just trying different options. He said, look, maybe Starkey's rhythm wasn't always there at different times. But then again, he did take three wickets from that in that second innings, but undoubtedly Mitchell Stark in his, in his test didn't have quite the same body language, and at times his pace was dropping noticeably, so he was, you know, whereas you, you get a, a Pat Cummins won't really drop below 142, 145, well, Mitchell Stark was, uh, I guess, fluctuating between about 134 and 144, um, and, or 150 so times, so when, when things are going well for Mitchell Stark, you know, that's when he's at his best, but I've got to say, he's, he's, he's this kind of swing he used to get wasn't quite there, Maybe his rhythm wasn't quite there. Um, Nathan Lyon did admit at, in yesterday's press conference that he was a bit tired at times, um, and that's to be expected. But I, I wonder when you have 16 days between a, a test and, a, and, a, and the last shield going to play, whether he was almost just needed was in need of another bowl before then, because he just he didn't quite find the rhythm that we sort of probably needed um, him to have in his test. Well, Richard, that's a popular opinion by many people. You know, this this trio of fast bowlers didn't play in the last round of Shield cricket, which in years gone by would have been crazy notion to think that they wouldn't play in the lead up to a Test match, and maybe he just came in a bit cold. Just to sort of wrap things up, how, how, how do you see this series playing out? Do you think India will will take this momentum and and use it and win the series? Uh, well, look, I can only go on what the curator is saying about the the Perth, the new Perth Stadium, um, and that's supposed to be a rule, you know, Green Street. That the, he said the match won't go five days; it'll only go three or four days because it's going to be such a, a green top with lots of pace. So, on that, if Australia plays to extremes and, and and Mitchell Stark and the boys 
Paddy Cummins are back in vogue, back in form for this test match. I, I predict Australia would win. Obviously, the carry is our, is our poor batting, but I still think with our pace attack, we just might have the edge over there, uh, just, and maybe square the series, and then anything can happen from there. So I thought, I thought we'd actually win the series at the start of the series, but everything's going to depend on this Perth test match and what, what actually happens in this Perth pitch. Yeah, I, I was with you. I predicted Australia 3-1, so I've got the one bit right. It's just now the three to Australia. <laughs> um, <laughs> So just before I go, what was the atmosphere like at the Adelaide Oval? There's a lot of talk about the fact that this is not a day-night fixture, and I know in the future it will be a day-night fixture. Was there some disappointment that it wasn't played at night, and was the atmosphere a bit down because of that? Uh, it's a mixed opinion. I mean, this, this test match still attracted, it was 130-odd people short of a record attendance for, for an India test, which was 113,000 last last time India toured in 2014. So if you go on that stat, I think that was, that was quite healthy. You've got to remember, I think Saturday, was, there was a lot of rains that had to get off, might have get off, you know, five to 10,000 people. So that didn't help. In terms of the day-night test, yeah, look, look there's a big split. There's a lot of people here who actually prefer the day the day test, and they loved it, um, and they couldn't wait for, the, for this test to unfold. But the where we didn't where we didn't get the people and probably the atmosphere was that that nighttime uh, buzz you get from a day-night test, and also with Sackville's forecasting between between five and ten thousand people didn't come from interstate. A lot of interstate visitors love the day-night test, and they come especially for that, like the flying on the day of the test and away they go. So, and they, it's just the novelty value. So that is where they would have lost um, probably probably uh, ten thousand people. And I was uh, commentating on the Sheffield Shield over the weekend, Richard on your team, South Australia v New South Wales, and Alex Kerry made a, a fine century, his second first-class century, and it couldn't come at a better time. Well, you know, every time Tim, Tim Payne gets hit on the on the uh, knuckle, uh, we all know he's had seven operations and he had a headline fracture of his uh, thumb in South Africa. So every time that happens, um, Alex Kerry is thrust in the spotlight because he is the Australian vice-captain at one-day level. He is contracted, so he's the, he's the heir apparent to Tim Payne. So... For him to get that century was very, very timely. So I don't think he wants to have two ten during this series or beyond. Or then Alex Carey comes in and uh, what an exciting package he is. Absolutely. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time on the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I know you've been hard at it at the Adelaide Test. So go and relax now and put the feet up. And hopefully we'll talk later in the summer about how the Adelaide Strikers fare in the Big Bash. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Andrew. Well, that was Richard Earl from the Adelaide Advertiser, who's been reporting on the whole Australia v India test match. All right, an absolute thrill coming up after the break. I have a, a very special guest, one of my favourite ever cricketers, Ian Healy. So stay tuned. Ian Healy will be joining me after the break. Healy slashes over the top, could go for four. Ambrose is coming around, doesn't get it. What a fine figure here he is when the pressure is on. You're listening to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, and I have the absolute pleasure to be joined by one of the true legends of Australian cricket. Ian Healy played 119 tests. Ian, can you believe that now? 119 tests? Seems like a lot. Not really. No, as soon as they finished and you had to look back on your career, you thought, wow, where did they go? So it certainly uh, happened quickly, but at the time it didn't feel that way. Yeah, now, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you on. I had such fun watching you play right throughout your career. You were such an entertaining batsman and so animated behind the stumps. So it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. But when you were selected for Australia, you were plucked from relative obscurity, only playing a handful of games for Queensland. What was it like when... You got the call up. How unexpected was it? Totally unexpected. I didn't really believe it. Uh, and then either did any of my family or friends. You know, <laughs> I rang my father and said, I, I think I've been selected in the Australian cricket team. And uh, he, he didn't believe it. And I did my best mate and uh, my brother-in-law-to-be. And I uh, left the office and uh, left messages as to where we'd be. No media had converged, but that was because... It was March the 31st, and tomorrow was not only April Fool's Day, but it was Good Friday, uh, and so that's when the media converged. But Queensland Cricket uh, rang me to ask if I'd heard the good news today, and uh, I said, no, no, what, what do you mean? And uh, 
they said, you're in. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I was just happy that Queensland had stuck with me to be the wicketkeeper to go on the end-of-season trip to Kingaroy in the country of Queensland. <laughs> and uh, they said, no, 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 you're going to Pakistan. Wow. I went bullshit. Uh, so it, it was uh, set off the chain of investigations and ABC Radio uh, confirmed with my dad that it was true. Oh, it's a, it's an amazing story. And I've heard that back in those days, there was no baggy green presentation. You just got it sort of sent to you in your kit bag. Is that how you got your baggy green? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you, you either, I think I got sent mine. That was 1988. And of course, that's the selection was the end of March. Our tour wasn't until uh, mid-September. Um, so I had plenty of time to adjust to my new notoriety. Yeah. Uh, still didn't, didn't make much difference. But I think... A soft cricket bag, a cricket coffin, as we call them, turned up with our training gear and my baggy green in there. So that's how uh, we used to receive our uh, baggy green, which is fine. We, or sometimes you go into the offices before a tour and pick up your training gear, etc., etc. And uh, I've read that you were a big fan of Rod Marsh growing up. And then uh, it was quite interesting that he retired in 1984 and there was a period of four years where Australia went through a few keepers and then you came in. Did you still feel any pressure? Well, of course you did. But how much pressure did you feel when you were sort of given the job? Um, n- not much because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I had nothing to lose. I was really the second wicketkeeper from Queensland uh, that have now, now been given the, the number one job in Australia. So not a lot was expected of me. There had been five wicket keepers between Rod and I, or I was the fifth, I think. Uh, and I just had a sense um, that the team, the hierarchy in the team, the selectors, the captain, Alan Border, the coach, Bobby Simpson, were ready to settle and, and show some patience. And that I was the lucky one that... Uh, received that attitude. So I had a sense that uh, they, they were just desperate to settle. And at the end of my first tour, which was up and down tour, but it finished okay, um, to Pakistan, uh, Alan Border said, you're going to be all right. You know, uh, so that was comforting too, that uh, he, he saw some consistency in what I could bring to the team and on the field. And did you gel with Alan Border and Bob Simpson, the Australian coach, when you, you went into the team environment? Yeah, very much so. Um, Alan was the Queensland captain, so I was in that squad and I'd played half a dozen games under his leadership in the two years prior. So, yes, knew Alan Border very well. Uh, not sure whether I gelled that much, but <laughs> if I didn't, he wouldn't have been uh, a party to me getting picked, I'm sure. So I probably did. And uh, Bobby Simpson didn't know me from a bar of soap, so... Greg Chappell was the number one selector, so he went around the country to every one of my games and spoke to the relevant people in each of the states, and he must have been persuasive. Bobby Simpson uh, got Craig McDermott and I to a lunch at the Queensland Cricketers Club, and that was a little audition. Uh, so, so yeah, it was uh, all all um, behind-the-scenes sort of stuff that I wasn't terribly aware of, I must admit. I was just doing my best to try to play well for Queensland, uh, which is the way to be, you know, very clear-headed and, and planned and um, and go for it, you know, and see what happens. Absolutely. And uh, when I think of that team of the late 80s and early 90s, I really think of you, Alan Border, David Byrne, Jeff Marsh and Bob Simpson as being core figures in the sort of rebuild of the Australian team. Is that what it was like from sort of the inside? Not really. Well, I wouldn't have been in that. Um, I turned out to be a part of a rebuild, but uh, at that stage in the late 80s, I was as raw as it could be. I was as, I was even rawer than Tim Payne last year, wow. you know, getting catapulted over Matthew Wade in Tasmania to play for Australia and, and then become the captain. But So I was catapulted over everyone. But I was 24 years of age and I didn't have the experience of painting to cope with this. So, so no, I had plenty of work to do uh, from the late 80s. Probably 1992, I felt a, uh, an experienced player in that team um, and a valued member. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't throw uh, out Steve Waugh. Uh, he he'd played for two and three years by the late 80s. Uh, Mark Taylor came into that team too. So very secure characters that uh, once we got relaxed, and content, our, our talent could come out, you know, and the patience, I said, that was ready to be shown with a few of us, uh, paid dividends for 20 years after that. And, and when you look at the current Australian team that are in a, a similar phase where they're trying to rebuild, and Justin Langer 
who you, I think, played in his first test with, talks a lot about patience and having to earn the right to sort of dominate test cricket. Is that where you see that this current Australian side, that they need to sort of show some faith and build a team? Very much so. Um, I take This side takes me back to the mid-80s, just before when I was selected, really. I, it wasn't when I was selected, but just before. I think their bowlers are better than the ones we were playing with. And our batsmen were better. You know, the top order of, say, Marsh, Boone, Jones, a young Stephen Moore and Alan Border, that, that, they have better batting experience than the current boys have got, but not as good at bowling. So, so yeah, it's right back to there. And it's just a matter of hard work, um, day in, day out, uh, on the training field, um, and getting as confident as you possibly can to approach anything you might encounter in the game. So you're, you're ready for it. So... Langer is the man that'll certainly instill that, as was Bobby Simpson. Uh, and then, um, you know, performance can take shape. Yeah, just a lot of hard work and a bit of faith by the selectors. Now, I read that you had a habit on a on a day of a test match. You would go into the car park with a golf ball and throw it against the wall as kind of a, a training and a warm-up. So how did that start? Uh, it was something that Peter Anderson, uh, Queensland number one wicketkeeper at the time, and I did a lot. It's not just on a match day. It's a it's a drill that a wicketkeeper can use to practice anything you might encounter behind the stumps on any given day, and it's a one that you can do on your own. So generally, a wicketkeeper's got to have someone throw the ball or hit the ball to them. Um, and if you haven't got that person, um, you know, in the early hours of the morning or the late hours after training and getting ready for tomorrow's work, then this golf ball drill uh, can get everything done. You can practice wicket-keeping, imaginary wicket-keeping over the stumps to the spinners, back to the quicks. You can practice your footwork, your balance, your body position, your glove work, um, and just uh, where you contact the ball and, and just be getting your mind and body ready for what, what you're going to encounter, whether it be tomorrow, next week, or today. It, uh, it's an extremely valuable drill to fill your mind uh, with something positive rather than negative thoughts that sometimes at five o'clock in the morning you, you find yourself tossing and turning and worrying. You know, that's that's bad for your concentration levels come five o'clock that afternoon. And you were quite a technician behind the stumps. You really prided yourself on the, the technical side of wicket-keeping. Uh, do you watch the current keeper, Tim Payne? How's his technique? He's, it's very good, uh, and he's got a great knowledge of what he's, uh, what he, how, how he's going to be the most effective. You know, three, you know, very simple basics: stay low with the ball and watch the ball forget the bat um, is the go. And then watch what does happen rather than what you think might happen when that ball hits the pitch. I.e., Nathan Lyon hits a, a foot mark. You you expect it to spin and bounce, but maybe it won't. So you've just got to stay there longer and watch what does happen. And then if you practice your body position, you, you'll be able to react to something that does jump and spit out of that footmark or slide straight on. You've got to watch what does happen and be in a position to uh, to react to it. And that might mean make sure your, your knees are still bent, your shoulders and, and hips are able to rotate. You know, you've got to be as loose as you can. And you, you can't be loose if you're worrying about too much, i.e. that swinging bat or what if he nicks it. Um, you've just got to watch the ball and react to it, to it. And that's as simple as it has to be. And, and do you have any concerns for Tim Payne having to be the captain of the side and maintain his keeping and batting? Yeah, uh, yes, I do. Um, but I don't think it's going to be an issue for Payne because he's not going to have to do it for long. You know, a couple of years and, and that'll be enough. I'm, I'm Betty saying that now already. <laughs> um, that'll be enough, but that's, that's probably all he'll have anyway. So it's a, it's been a wonderful opportunity for him. We've been very lucky to have had him in the position where he was when uh, the disaster struck of Cape Town, um, and he's taken over extremely well. So it's very high-energy stuff. He'll be good enough because he's hungry enough, uh, having been disadvantaged with that broken finger for three to five years. You know, he'll lap it up, and he'll be good at it, and then Steve Smith can come in a couple of years' time and be captain again. Now, you were a part of three victorious Ashes tours, 89, 93 and 97. I imagine they are some of your fondest memories. Yes, I'd say so. They're right up there. You know, 
touring successfully is difficult and we undervalue it right now, uh, hence the unacceptable record in England since 2001. And, and it's been uh, something we've got to change. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing any policies that Justin Langer introduces to the touring party of 2019 um, that really focuses them and, and makes sure we are 100% into winning an Ashes series um, in England because, as I said, it's been unacceptable uh, for nearly 20 years. So, uh, yeah, it, it, they're wonderful times. Uh, great camaraderie and togetherness in a group around England who love cricket. Um, and it, it's a much easier way to get around England. That's winning rather than losing. They can be very hard work uh, in in uh, verbalising us uh, when we lose. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, it was The tours back then were so different to now. You used to play a, a, a swathe of county games on tour. And I read that in 1989, they'd, they'd schedule county games the day after a test match. Uh, th- that seems astounding. Well, and, and that's right. And then the day after that three-day game, we started another one immediately after. So the, the schedule was a good lead-up into uh, cricket, getting cricket into our belts over there in the cool conditions, late April into May, then a one-day series of three games against England where we we traditionally didn't play very well. Then more county games just to get ready for the first test. And then the, the first test, we'd then have... A three-day are starting the day after the scheduled fifth day um, for three days. Then we travel and play again the next day after that. So we play six days in a row, um, vary the team up, of course. And then we'd have two days off, sometimes three, at the new venue for the next test. And then we'd have that sort of schedule for six tests. It was crammed in like that because 1981 and 85 were disrupted by weather uh, and there wasn't enough cricket played. So... They were under the premise that we'd lose lose time again, and you wouldn't know it, but we didn't lose any time. It was a hot, dry tour, beautiful to be part of that weather, and we had to play the lot. So uh, 93 was a bit the same, I think. We started to weed out a few games by 97, but, you know, it didn't hurt. It certainly didn't hurt playing more games over there. Our spinners had to get used to that, that juke ball. The quicks had to, um, and as, as well, because it's a cool, slippery environment there. The ball becomes uh, much harder to grip when you're not uh, sweating as much. And, uh, yeah, it takes time, and we used it. We we took time and did well. Yeah, I bet backing up after a, a win celebration would have been a bit testing, some of those county fixtures. It was very testing. Uh, we played a game in Nottingham, uh, having won a test match not sure, I think, possibly could have been the Ashes or it was a, a great victory early in the Ashes tour. We might have even won the Ashes the night before and Jeff Marsh had to go out and toss and there was a really green wicket at Trent Bridge, so green that they changed it. They said, no, no, we'll go, we'll play, take a little bit more time and we'll play on this other one uh, because they did have some, you know, experienced, fast international bowlers in the Nottinghamshire team. So, so... Uh, Jeff Marsh won the toss and he batted on this brand new wicket which was probably underprepared. He had to bat because no one was in the dressing room awake. So <laughs> so he, he, he ended up batting and they did well and won the game in three days. So uh, that, that's sort of momentum we had. We were all putting in when, when we had to and uh, making runs here and there and taking wickets. So it, it was it was very competitive, not not easy, but great fun. And I remember when you came back from the 1989 tour, there was a huge, huge reception by the Aussie public and you had a, a ticker tape parade in Sydney and it was it was wild. I mean, it was, it was a big parade. Yeah, it was huge. It's a very, very well attended parade too in Sydney, then Melbourne. And then we were guests of the AFL final both years, 1989 and 1993. I think, I think we started to take it for granted in 97, but 93 had nice parades too. Um, it's just a sign that in 1989, it was the first time we'd regained the Ashes in England for 53 years. Wow. So to do that, to go over to England and regain the Ashes was rare. And we'd lost in 1981 and 1985 um, and in 86-7 in Australia. England had beaten us in everything out here, the, the Test Series, the America's Cup Challenge and the World Series Cup. So we went over in 89, no chance given to us, and we won 4-0. So the, the public sat up and loved it. Absolutely. I was one of those people sitting up watching it. Uh, I remember your first test century at Old Trafford. 
think Australia was heading towards a declaration. Now, you only made four first-class centuries, and they were all test centuries, so you, you saved the best for the highest level. It must have been such a great occasion to bring up a three figures in a test match. Yeah, it was pretty good. Well, I couldn't, I, I failed a couple of times for Queensland. I had a couple of 90 not outs and stuff like that, but our tail wasn't as strong as the Australian tail. Um, and so, you know, you sometimes get cut mm. off. Uh, but yeah, that particular day, we lost two early wickets in the morning. Basically, we had to, we had to bat, uh, pretty quickly to build up enough total on, on by the end of day four to have a bowl and get them out tomorrow, you know, day five. So, and then, uh, I think we went bang, bang, Boone and board have got out quite quickly. So I didn't have much time to think. I, I was just in there. And then when I was about 20, not out, batting with Stephen Waugh, he sort of said, this is going to be your day. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you'll get 100 here. I said, get out of it. <laughs> anyway, we just kept kept mucking around together. And um, he then fed me some strike, and the score was ticking over nicely. We're getting the target we're sort of heading towards, we wanted to head towards. And, yeah, you know, we, we I got it. I got there. So uh, I went from 90 to 100 very quickly, I think, with three scoring. So two and a four and a four. So... It all happened pretty quick. Then we declared, and then there was a bit of pressure on from then on. I was struggling to sort of come down off that first century, and I had a, maybe an hour to, to keep on the last uh, on the day four, and and then day five. I just could not wait to have a beer, you know, <laughs> at the end of day five. But celebrate. We had all this work to do to yeah to get them all out again and win the test. That that's the bit about it. So so I I did that a bit tough actually to to sort of maintain a focus that was needed uh, with on a spinning deck as a wicketkeeper before you could really let your hair down. That, that, was a, that was a challenge, and we got through it. And were you nervous in the 90s? Some players get paralysed by nerves when they get close to a ton. Were you with that sort of player? Oh, no, well, not really. I didn't, I didn't feel it then because job was done, you know. I, I didn't have anything to lose. If I got out for 95, I was probably happy and... Uh, you know, people were appreciative of that. Um, so I didn't really get nervous. And, and then as it turned out, Philip Defrotus bowled me a couple of half ollies, angled in on the pads, and I, I sort of went down down the ground and over mid-on and over square leg. So it, it happened really quick. So I got the balls I needed to so that I didn't have to sweat for long. So, no, I didn't, I didn't feel uh, very nervous on that particular day. Now, how often did you play with a broken finger or fingers as a test keeper? Oh, it might have been, you know, a dozen or 20 times. Um, wow. But I didn't I didn't get them x-rayed, you know. I had two fingers x-rayed in my time, uh, one that I badly broke in Perth. Uh, in 1991, on the last afternoon of a Perth test, uh, the week before we were going to the West Indies, and it, it uh, didn't look too good. So uh, our physio uh, made me have it x-rayed, and didn't threaten the tour or anything. He said, I, I just need to know what I'm dealing with medically. So uh, we had that x-rayed and we, we uh, treated it accordingly. Um, and if you're going to play with it, you, you know, you don't treat it like a broken finger. You treat it like a bruised finger, and that's just continuous ice ice and heat treatment. Um, make sure you're strapping it well and making sure you're putting enough compression on it at any given stage when you're not training or playing. Uh, and and uh, so... So you treat it like bruised fingers. So those 20 I'm talking about, only two I knew that were broken. That one was one, and it was hard work for about six weeks. And then I broke a, a thumb where in Pakistan, oh, mid-90s, where I couldn't I couldn't get my glove back on. You know, I couldn't function. So if you can't function, you can't play. So uh, that was the one break uh, high up in the, the shank, the drumstick of my thumb that, that um, cost me a game. So the... the the specialist that uh, sort of wanted me laughed at me when I was going to the West Indies in 91 with the broken finger I had, was ready. When I came back from Pakistan, he said, come in. I went to his office and he had his whiteboard was already set out, a five-week program to get this broken thumb right for the first Ashes test in Brisbane. So he'd come around to my thinking and uh, we, we got it done. It wasn't going to be totally knitted by then, but uh, it was good enough, and I never had any consequences or ramifications of playing with it. Yeah, because the thinking back when you were playing was that you didn't want to give anyone else a, a chance at your spot, did you? I mean, if you were out with a, a broken finger, then someone else got a, a crack at your spot, so you wanted to hold on to it. 
Yeah, and it's a broken finger. I have a problem uh, with a broken finger that st- that still enables you to perform. You, you can do your job, costing you a test match for Australia. So, uh, But as soon as the finger that didn't enable you to perform naturally, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't play. I, bat, a lot of batsmen have to give up their spots uh, with broken fingers because they just can't grip the bat and, and their timings are skew and their power's off. So... So they just have to sit out. So, but yeah, yeah, that was that was always, and I still I still hope it's the same thinking. Never give a, a sucker an even chance. You know that came from Wally Grout, as far as I'm concerned, and that's what we live by. We we lived it. Any any way you can play, you do it. Now moving on to the 1995 tour of West Indies. Now I remember the 1991 tour of the West Indies was a wild tour to watch, and it seemed like in that tour that the Australians were starting to believe you could beat the West Indies. And then 1991 and the 92-93 series were tough series, closely contested. And then 1995, you, you, you won the final test in Jamaica. Did it feel like, I guess, you know, climbing a mountain or Everest or some cliche like that? Oh, not quite. Uh, but let's go back to it. I, they were a proud champion, that West Indies side. You know, we did make conscious efforts to bowl aggressively at their tail enders in 1991 and and take them on, you know. Our batsmen, our, our batting tail-enders, knew they were going to cop it and uh, they'll get it back from their fast bowlers and, and they weren't very successful. <laughs> um, but it was an aggressive series, that's for sure. And they fought hard. They fought back very proudly, the West Indies, and, and beat us. Uh, but then 92-3 in Australia, we lost by one run in Hove, in Adelaide. We we knew we probably weren't going to win Perth. That was the next test, and we needed to win Adelaide and to win the series, and we didn't. We lost by one. Um, so again, they were proud. They had, still had their superstar names in there, you know, Haynes, Greenwich, uh, Richards. So uh, that was that's the team we wanted to beat. Maybe Malcolm Marshall was still there then. And then in 1995, Richie Richardson had taken over. Uh, they were down to Kirtley, Courtney, um, and Patrick Patterson rather than rather than Malcolm, and and so it was not as good a side that we ended up beating. So if you want to fast track a cycle of success and get into it before it runs its course, you've got to beat them with their best team. And and then we couldn't, we couldn't, we we waited till the team changed. They were still a good team, and. Uh, we we finally beat them, and then we've been hard ever since. Yeah, and the, the relations between the two sides in that period, they were pretty hotly contested series, weren't they, on and off the field? Yeah, and um, more so just on the field, traditionally. Uh, we, there was a couple of blow-ups blow every now and then, and that 91 aggression where uh, Gordon Greenwich broke a, a toe joint, uh, they split Craig McDermott through his helmet. We we then got one through the helmet of Gus Logie and broke his nose. So it was really aggressive type cricket. The same in the crowds. Uh, then 92-3 was excellent. Re- really great series to be uh, against them. Uh, then 95, yeah, you know, there were some media comments flying around in 95, but but the team still got on pretty well, I thought. We didn't mix as much as we started to, uh, you know, with Desmond and Gordon and uh, Jeff Dujon, Malcolm Marshall, Roger Harper, Viv Richards. We're always in having drinks with them at the end of a end of a batting day. When they've had a day in the field, we used to go to them. Uh, but then that, that died off, I think, with the advent of, you know, eating properly and, and getting away from the grounds to unwind rather than sitting around them. Bit of a new generation, I suppose. Uh, so we weren't doing as much as that uh, by the end, by the late 90s. But our, our teams have... I think they've got a healthy regard for each other. That's good. And uh, you and Desmond Haynes had that blow up on the field. Do you do you ever see Desmond around and have a bit of a giggle about it now? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it's not a regular thing, but uh, more regular. Jeez, that was uh, 1991. <laughs> That's a long time ago. It's now 30 years ago. Uh, but, I mean, he came over to Australia and played in my testimonial game. Ten years after that, yeah, we'd been we'd bumped into each other on over forties tournaments and stuff like that. So, so there wasn't much to that. Uh, I sort of got um, got in under his skin at a time where he was feeling the pressure of maybe finishing his career, and and he reacted to a pretty innocent comment that I said to him when I, when I had to explain myself to Bob Simpson and Laurie Saul, our team manager, off the field at the end of that day of the blow up. Um, I told them what I said, and they sort of said, no, there must be more of that. No, they sort of didn't really believe me. But 
uh, you know, it was a surprising reaction to, a, you know, a, a really senior player that was sort of probably pondering his future. So, yeah, yeah, so Desi and I have spoken about it a lot. Now, you played under two great captains, Alan Border and Mark Taylor. I guess what made them such good leaders? Well, I, had, I think Mark Taylor was the most natural of the two. I played one year with Steve War too, but, uh, you know, it was new and new for him in the year that I was there. So Mark, Mark was a leader. He'd led something before, you know, in the part, youth pathway system. He was a captain all along. He'd led New South Wales to a Sheffield Shield final victory. So he'd done, he was a captain. Alan Border was the best player in the team, so he became the captain when Kim Hughes gave it away. And he became a great captain when he finally got the trust in his team. You know, he had a, a very choppy and changey team through the mid-80s when uh, Chapel and Lily and Marsh uh, retired together. Then players all went to South Africa for a Rebel tour for two years. They were banned for one, something like that. Um, but the guts got ripped out of Alan Border's uh, playing ranks. Um, and so he slowly built it. It was pretty turbulent, I think. Um, right up to the 1987 World Cup victory that they had, it was a surprise. It was unreal. I think they were 66 to one, and they won that World Cup in uh, India and Pakistan. And then the 1989 Ashes, I think, put the final confidence onto that team. Uh, that that five-day cricket was in our sights as well now. So we were getting pretty good at one-day cricket, um, and now we could win five-day matches. So off we went, you know, with our sights set on the West Indies, so, which finally happened in 95. But, but, yeah, he became a really good skipper when he could relax, that the rest of us could do our jobs. Um, and then Mark Taylor took over an extremely talented unit with now a young Warren in it and a young McGrath in it. They'll, they'll come good at some stage. They, they weren't, you know, you didn't really understand how good they were going to be probably, uh, but they were good blokes to have in the team, so let's go. And then uh, Steve Waugh took over from Mark Taylor with, you know, replaced me with Gilly and uh, the Slater and, uh, the Slater and uh, Taylor opening combination ended up turning into Hayden and Langer, who really cemented themselves. Damien Martin, young Michael Clark, young Ricky Ponding at his best. Gillespie and Brett Lee to come in between Warney and, and McGrath. I think that that's nearly the best team Australia's ever had, um, just early in the 2000s. And that, that's why it's disappointing. That team got beaten in 2005 uh, against England. But uh, that, that was a supremely confident and impossible-to-beat team. That's right. Now let's go back to 1998. It was a significant milestone for you. You broke the world record to take the most dismissals as a wicketkeeper going past Rod Marsh's 355. Now, unfortunately, it was in Pakistan, so you probably couldn't have a drink to celebrate, but it must have been so surreal for you to go past your childhood hero and, and be the world record holder. Yeah, yeah it was. It felt, felt different. It, it was uh, big. I uh, got a drink. I got a drink in there. Went Good. to the, either the British Embassy or the American Club. I can't remember which one it was now. And Rod Marsh found a way to get me a bottle of champagne into the middle of Pakistan. So uh, he was a legend right <laughs> to then. Yeah, I mean, I think I got two very early dismissals in the test match. And then I had to wait till late in the fourth day, I reckon, towards the end of the match. It became Wazi Makram, so it was, we didn't have that many more wickets to get, and I still hadn't got my third one, which I needed, um, and finally finally got it. So we didn't have too much to do the next day in winning that test match, but but uh, we held off and we had a good drink the next day at uh, at the embassy. Good to hear. Now, you spoke about being replaced by Adam Gilchrist in the team I think it was in 1999. What was it like at the right at the end of your career when you sort of knew Gilly was waiting in the wings and he was a pretty handy player? Did you sort of feel that sort of someone looking over your shoulder? Oh, you pro- I probably did. I don't remember that vivid. I guess I guess I got to the end, you know, uh, and towards the very end, whilst my gloves were still fine, my batting was very wobbly. You know, I had an average tour of Sri Lanka and then. Didn't even make runs in Zimbabwe in my last test when I, I did have some batting opportunities to make runs in those two tests. So in, the, in those scenarios and couldn't. So um, you know it was time to it was time to think about finishing. You know, and um, and as soon as you start thinking about finishing, they reckon you are finished. So that was it. Um, so I didn't really feel Gilly uh, breathing so strongly, but. But uh, he, I thought the transition of him into first in, into international cricket two years before in the one-day games was excellent. It gave him the breathing space uh, 
to really establish himself and get ready to go, and uh, he certainly did that. And uh, what's it been post-playing career for you? What's it been like post-playing career for you? Have you, have you enjoyed retirement? Uh, yes, I have. Um, you, you sort of realise how big the world is out there. The world that you think is yours is in cricket is uh, quite focused and quite narrow. Um, but there's still plenty to do and enjoy in that. And then when you finish, you go, oh, wow, look at all these opportunities out here. What, what should I do? And, you you know, I basically spent five years travelling around and using my profile of, uh, you know, a recently retired uh, national cricketer and having fun playing golf and speaking and all that sort of stuff. And then and then decided I already had bought into a business, uh, the Great Chapel Cricket Centre, uh, in 1997, uh, so I had a, a business head on a little bit and uh, I, I slowly got sucked into an opportunity uh, which I was given um, a footballing mates of mine, Chris Johns and Kevin Walters, came to me with their business plan and we're going to start a car wash. It, it works in Melbourne, it works in Sydney, we've been to America, it's been working for 80 years over there. Um, why wouldn't it work in Brisbane? So we started a car wash in Brizzy and we lost a lot of money, most of my cricket money. <laughs> and then... Uh, no, it's it's come good. So good. we now have eleven eleven car washes, and that keeps us busy. We we do it using people, you know, people and production lines, and you know, they're high volume car washes, which are quite emotional at times. And um, yeah, we have to be very careful. And do you keep in touch with many of your former teammates? Oh, not really. Um, there there may be something on this year. Actually, you know, it, it's or next year. It's uh, what twenty, thirty years from our first Ashes victory in nineteen eighty nine. So we might have a big reunion there. But you know, I've worked with Mark Taylor and uh, Michael Slater and Shane Warne uh, over the last twenty years. Um, so we've kept in touch. We run into Merv and Dino whilst we're around town mm-hmm. in Melbourne. <laughs> Mark War's always around. He's been either a selector or a fellow commentator. Uh, Stephen, a bit rarer, Stephen, but every now and then. So, yeah, McGrath's around the cricket games, especially in the Sydney Test. So, so whilst it's not a, a very formal type catch-up or or a constant catch-up, there, there's enough around the cricketing summers, I reckon. And uh, we, we generally get around a little bit. I'll tell you what, I enjoy watching your niece play, Elisa Healy. Yes. She is a great player. She's in top form at the moment. It's been commented that she has some of your mannerisms behind the stumps. Yeah. Do you enjoy watching her play? Yes, I do. I get a little bit nervous uh, because she's got a high-risk game with the bat. Um, so you do get nervous of her, you know, for her that she might play an unfortunate shot and, and look look poor getting out. Um, but no, she's in great touch. Yes, those mannerisms are. They must have come from television. You know, she moved to to live in Sydney um, at a young age, about nine or ten, I think they were, uh, when they moved to Sydney. My brother and sister-in-law. So um, she, uh, yeah, it's probably you know watching Uncle Ian on TV that those things sort of sunk in. But but uh, no, I've had limited exposure with her wicket-keeping one on one. She's come to a few camps up in Brisbane which I have the elite keepers together. Um, and all the boys go, God, who's the girl? <laughs> you know, because she was right, impressive right from the word go. So, and, you know, every now and then she just comes back and we have a little touch-up session here and there. She's got your cheekiness, that's for sure. Well, I think she's got me covered for that, actually. <laughs> um, she certainly doesn't mind uh, speaking her mind and, and having a crack. So, yeah, I think she's got me covered. Now, uh, you're on board with Fox Cricket for the summer, so you'll be back in the commentary box. Are we going to see you at the Brisbane Heat Games and that kind of thing? Yeah, a few Brisbane Heat Games, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, my, Big Bash is my next uh, commitment. I, I did some domestic one-day matches in the JLT Cup and now the Big Bash and then the Brisbane Test Match. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, uh, being part of it again. Um, the energy that Fox are throwing at the, the coverage of our sport is unreal. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm glad it was a great first test for them to display their wares. Absolutely. It was a great coverage, very invigorating. Now, my last question is that they uh, they had a period where they turned off the commentators and turned up the stump mics and just let the viewers sort of hear what was going out on the middle. How would you have enjoyed that if you were still playing? I wouldn't have. Um, <laughs> I, a lot of countries did that. South Africa did that all the time. You could be driving in your car. And you could hear the stump mics, you know. And so it's me going, bar warning, you know, and and uh, I'd hate that. But 
yeah, very rarely. It'd be interesting if something blew up out there, whether whether they turn them down uh, and or whether they inform the players they're going to be up full time. So, you know, if something blows up, you know, be warned. Um, so I don't know. It, it uh, I'd have to. I'll I'll find out about that one. But I have I have uh, listened to that uh, on the app this, this afternoon, and uh, very very wearing that Indian keeper. He, he's got a nasty tone too. That. Uh, sort of rivals mine, I reckon, which would irritate me. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of I I am of, I've always enjoyed sledging, but I I think that it's sort of changed a little has with the increased coverage that there's more cameras, there's there's more eyes on every game. That you just have to be a bit more careful now. I mean, you can say what you want about the past, but going forward, you just have to sort of move with the times. I mean, you got cameras on the field now. Well, especially if the cameras. Uh, you know, have permission to be on all the time and the microphones, you know, but, you know, we've always had the same, that, that number of cameras, cameras on the field, not, not so much the ones wheeling around the joint, but, but microphones, we would have liked to have been told that the stump mics are going to stay up. So times might have changed and the players will have to change, but hopefully they were told that the times have changed. Yeah, give them <laughs> um, a warning. Because that could have been, yeah, yeah, that could have been just, just an informing that uh, if, uh, the mics are on full stop. I've got no problems with it. I, I don't think times have changed on the field. That The sort of talk that Pant was putting on was a little too personal, a little too distracting to Pat Cummins for my, for my liking. Uh, we would have only talked to each other, not, not uh, used the batsman's name and be talking at him while he was trying to concentrate. But, but that's okay. You know, if the umpires might, didn't mind that, then so be it, game on. Yeah, and do you think the Aussie team needed to just reset its behaviour after the last year and what happened in South Africa? Just kind of, you know, just seemed to get a bit out of hand in the odd occasion recently. Yeah, I think so, but um, I mean, there's there's never been an umpires report, so maybe they weren't. You know, you know, I, I don't know whether the umpires uh, should have done a lot more in in the cases of Coley, Coley and Warner, the way they used to run in and abuse personally. It's, it was unacceptable, but I never. You know, if you're a board administrator and you don't see a report come in from the the uh, umpires, they must be okay with it. Mm. You know, so so yeah, I think there needed to be a reset of behaviour. It's been done very swiftly, and it'll be fine. And I was ple- really pleased to hear Virat Kohli in his interview uh, recently with Gilly sort of say his excessive gesturing and and personal nature of his aggression uh, was a mistake. And he's learnt from it to to play in a much more uh, respectful way for the traditions of the game. So that was excellent that that he's admitted um, that, and uh, he's a better person for it. Exactly right. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you about your career. I could have sat here for hours uh, talking about some of the great moments. There's a few maybe we'll save for another time, but thanks so much for coming on the podcast and we look forward to seeing you uh, on Fox Cricket over summer. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Well, I can't believe it. I've had Alan Border and Ian Healy on this season so far, two of my all-time favourite cricketers. What a start to the summer for the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. All right, coming up after the break, I was at North Sydney Oval last Friday night when the Sydney Sixers took on the Perth Scorchers in the Women's Big Bash League and Elise Perry smashed the Sixers to victory. Hit 102 not out. She needed uh, two for her century. The Sixers needed one uh, for the win, so she had to hit a boundary. So she hit a ball for four straight over the bowler's head to hit the winning runs and go to her century. It was a stunning night. And then after the game, I took a roving mic onto the field and got to speak to Perth Scorchers captain Elise Villani and Sydney Sixers player Dane Van Nakirk. Coming up after the break, we'll have the roving mic at the Women's Big Bash. <laughs> Well, I'm here at North Sydney Oval with uh, the Scorchers captain, Elise Villani, for tonight's game. You've just seen your Australian teammate, Elise Perry, put you to the sword. What was it like being on the receiving end? 
Oh, <laughs> wasn't the best feeling in the world. Um, no, she batted extremely well. Um, I thought we were probably 20 runs short in the end with the bat. Um, add that in with a couple of loose balls um, and then let ourselves down in the field as well. So we are probably, you know, 15% off in each area and that was enough for someone of, you know, such good calibre to capitalise on that. And, and how's it been for you coming back from such a glorious World T20 victory, getting straight into the women's big bash? Yeah, I think you know, I'd be lying if I said there weren't a few tired bodies around, but at the same time, um, it's our job and we love it and we'd much rather be playing as much as possible. Um, so I think it's a great time to be a part of the sport. Absolutely. So, I mean, we all just really enjoyed the World T20. It was fantastic to see you all play so well. What are your memories of the tournament? Like, what are a couple of moments that stand out for you? Uh, you know, one of the moments that stand out for me is when Elise Perry bowled Dotton right through the gate. Uh, obviously, you know, Elisa Healy just batting superbly the, the entire way throughout the innings. Um, Elisa, Peely, Elisa Healy and uh, Megan Shute colliding mid-pitch, which is always an interesting memory. But um, And then, yeah, the big one of actually um, the girls hitting the winning runs was, um, yeah, it was a very special tournament. And you took over the captaincy tonight for the Scorchers. Meg Lanning's injured. Is that going to be an ongoing thing or do you think it was just for tonight? Uh, we'll just have to wait and see, I think. Obviously, uh, when Meg's fit and firing, she's the first-choice captain, so I have no doubt that, that when she's right to go, she'll um, take the reins again. But um, I'll just keep supporting her any way that I can, and, and we look forward to having her back in the team. And, and do you like captaining the team? Yeah, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed captaining the side last year, and, um, yeah, it's always something I, I feel a great privilege and honour doing and yeah it's something that I really enjoy doing but at the same time you know you've got the Australian captain so you'd be silly not to give her the job. That's right now you you were smashing them out there opening with uh, Amy Jones. How's your form going? You feeling good? Yeah I'm feeling really good. Um, I'm feeling like I'm I'm hitting the ball well and I've, I've got good intent at the crease and I think with T20 cricket, that's all you can sort of bank on and, and what will be will be in, to some extent. So, yeah, I'm feeling good, but that doesn't um, guarantee me any runs by any stretch of the imagination. No, it must be nice to get out there and open up and get, the, you know, the chance to face the new ball. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you spoke to, to any batter around the competition, everyone wants to be up top opening the batting with the new ball, only two fielders out, beautiful batting decks and quick outfields. I think you'd be silly not to want to open. That's right. And just before we go, what do you think about the Scorchers WBBL team for this tournament? What are some of the strengths that you see going forward? Oh, I think we've got a pretty strong batting lineup, um, particularly when we're at full strength. Um, I also think we've got some real young talent coming through as well. Um, you, you know, starting to see Tanil Pichel with the ball, and um, obviously Heather Graham. You can always bank on her four overs for, for not many with the ball as well. So I think we've got a, a really great mix of experienced youth, international, local players. Uh, I think we've got a really good balance. Great. Well, best of luck with the rest of the tournament, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right, I'm here in North Sydney Oval with Sydney Six. The star Dane Van Niekirk from South Africa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Very good. Uh, one of the most great stories in the off season were you marrying a teammate, Marizana Cap. Um, I guess the first thing is, what is it like playing with your other half? Horrible. No, I'm joking. Um, no, it's it's actually. You know, we've done it so long. Um, I mean, this year we'll. Well, next year we'll be together for 10 years. So, I mean, we've play, been play, playing cricket forever uh, together. You know, we kind of know how to battle cricket life and personal life. Sometimes, yes, it does get a bit much, but um, no, I enjoy it. I mean, I see the world with, with obviously my wife and, and you know, how better to, to, like, to spend your life than, than see the world with, with someone you love. Absolutely. And, and how was the wedding day? Oh, brilliant. It was, it was very, um, you know, quaint and, and um, private. You know, there was, a, I think it was a total of... 17 people there. So you didn't so. invite your sixes teammates? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a big trip for them to, to make it for, for one day. Um, no, obviously if we were closer that would have been ideal, but no, we, we decided on just close family and then both of us had um, two friends, which was our teammates, Lizali and Chloe Tryon, yeah. and they brought their partners, so it was very um, private and, and intimate. And you, and you made history in the ICC World T20 batting together the first time a couple has done that. Were you aware of that record? Uh, no, not really. We don't really think about that. Um, you know, the moment we, we walk on the park, we're strictly teammates and, and we don't think about us being um, married and stuff. So, you know, we try and keep that very separate from, from our cricketing lives. Yeah, I suggested on a podcast recently when two men that would happen and uh, the, the, the room went silent. So I think that could be, well, well that'll be history when it happens. But, uh, <laughs> that would be 
funny. I don't know. You don't even think that that will happen. Could be a little while. <laughs> um, so what are your hopes for the, your season with the Sixers now? Oh, we want to win it, you know. Um, we have a very strong team and, and we believe in each and every player and, and their ability. And we just said we're going to take every game as it comes and hopefully, you know, that'll be good enough to take us through to another final. Absolutely. And we've just seen an inspirational innings from your skipper, Elise Perry. It must be so nice when she's on your team for a change. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, she's incredible. She's an incredible cricketer and, you know, she, she had to silence some critics with her, um, with her bat and, and she, did, she did just that. You know, strike rate is up there and a, and a big 100 in a chasing. It's brilliant and um, it was nice to be there with her and, and to see her go through that. You did fantastic tonight, bowled well, I think took two or three wickets and mm-hmm. we were there at the end. How's your form going into the rest of the tournament? Well, I think it just picked up. <laughs> I don't want to speak too early, but um, no, it's just good to get have a nice hit out. Um, you know, my bowling went really well at the World Cup, and it's gone really well, yeah. And um, you know, hopefully, I can continue that rhythm and form. But uh, the batting was a bit of concern for me coming into the game. I didn't feel quite myself, but. Um, with this team they always believe in you and they keep you positive and give you a positive mindset and obviously going in batting with Pez that's that's hitting the ball so well she made my life a lot easier yeah and do you like the Australian wickets with the ball coming on a little bit more oh uh, sometimes hey um you know in Melbourne it, in, in Melbourne I didn't felt like it came on quite as well but maybe that was just my mindset but um yes as a bowler no uh, as a batter maybe yes and do you like uh being based in Sydney over summer Oh, yeah, we're based in Kuji, so Sixers are looking after us really well. Um, you know, we're very close to the beach, and um, you know, it's just nice to, to have a place where you can get out um, besides cricket, you know, just, just enjoy yourself and take, take in the sun and, and all that. So, yeah, no, we love Sydney. Great. Well, have a great rest of the tournament, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Remember, there's another show coming up soon. So if you want to message us, you can email in auscricketpod. That's auscricketpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at amenners, A-M-E-N-N-E-R-S. If you want to tweet me a question or any topic you'd like us to discuss. So, or you can find all that information on my website, andrewmensel.com. You've been listening to Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks so much to Richard Earl from the Adelaide Advertiser, to Ian Healy from Fox Cricket and obviously Australian Test legend, and Elise Villani and Dane Van Nakirk for coming on the podcast. I'll be back soon with another show. 